We heard a lot about the candidates and parties during the midterms, but more than 130 measures were also on ballots across the U.S. last week, from decriminalizing psychedelic mushrooms to prohibiting slavery to implementing new rules around how and where we vote. Americans made a lot of local decisions with national implications this November. We'll discuss some of the midterm results you might have missed and what they mean for you. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor Smartwool. From hiking summits to running errands, backcountry skiing to couch surfing, Smartwool base layers are everything you need to go anywhere. They make versatile merino wool base layers that offer all-day comfort for all your adventures. They're the first layer you'll want to put on, and the last layer you'll want to take off. Enjoy 15% off your first order and find the right base layer for you at smartwool.com. Let's get right into the conversation with our first guest. Reed Wilson is a familiar voice here at 1A. He's the founder and editor-in-chief at Pluribus News. That's an online media outlet covering state-level public policy. Reed, it's always great to have you on. Hey, Jen. Thanks for having me. So ballots, as I said, are still being counted in some states, but with a little more distance from the election, what are some of the key takeaways for you? Well, uh, abortion rights was clearly a driver of votes, not only in uh, president in, in the, the Senate contests and gubernatorial contests around the country, but also in I mean, they proved popular in ballot measures. There were five abortion rights measures uh, on the ballot. Uh, abortion measures, some some adding new restrictions, some adding new protections uh, on the ballot. The pro-abortion rights side won in all five cases, and I think as we get uh, closer to you know the twenty. 23 and 2024 elections, we're probably going to see a lot more abortion measures uh, showing up on the ballot. Any other big takeaways? Yeah, there are fewer initiatives uh, on the ballot this year than there have been in previous years, and that's in part because of the success of voter turnout. Most of these ballot initiatives are uh, placed on the ballot after collecting a certain number of signatures, and those signature the, the threshold for those signatures is determined by the prior year's gubernatorial election results. So more people turning out in 2018 and 2020 meant that there were higher thresholds and therefore fewer ballot initiatives uh, on the ballot. This year, but the ballot measure remains extremely popular, especially in Western states. Uh, it's really a way that progressives, especially, uh, have used to advance their own policies, even if they don't have majorities uh, in state legislatures. Beyond abortion rights on the ballot, what other issues did voters want to tackle this election season? Well, there are always broad, broad uh, initiatives that you know a broad range of initiatives that take place. Everything from you know climate resiliency bonds in uh, places like New York and Rhode Island uh, to you know uh, the, the the biggest, most expensive political fight uh, in America. And I think we talked about this last week uh, was two California ballot initiatives that had to do with sports wagering. Those two races together attracted more than six hundred million dollars in spending, and uh, perhaps. Perhaps because of all that spending, uh, they both lost by massive margins. So, um, a pretty incredible result there in California. California tends to be the hub of. Uh, sort of market-moving ballot measures uh, because it is just such a big economy and, and a place where 
corporations or special interest groups can go and change state law in a way that affects not just that market, but markets across the rest of the country, too. We got this email from Niels who says, in Florida and other states, administrations are actively working at eliminating the people's ability to introduce ballot measures. The only conclusion I can draw from legislators blatantly violating state and the federal constitution with no repercussions, legal or otherwise, is that our system does not work and citizens have no effective method of improving it. We should mention that Arizona had a ballot measure about ballot measures. The initiative was rejected, but it would have allowed the legislature to amend or repeal voter-approved ballot measures if any parts of them get struck down by the state or U.S. Supreme Court. And this would have essentially limited voters' power. Arkansas and Colorado also had ballot measures about ballot measures themselves. Is this a new trend we're starting to see, Reed, um, states trying to limit initiatives brought by voters? I think it is. And the uh, the states, most of the states that you talked about, there are two of the states you talked about there, Arkansas and Arizona, obviously have Republican legislatures and Republican governors for now. Arizona just elected a Democratic governor. Uh, but this is, you know, as I said, progressives have used the ballot initiative in recent years to advance their policies at a time when they can't get them through the legislature, whether that's raising the minimum wage or imposing wealth taxes or things like that. And what some of these legislatures have done is tried to change the rules so that it would effectively be more difficult uh, to pass an initiative or even get an initiative on the ballot in the first place. And you mentioned the Arizona measure that failed. Well, at least one more passed, uh, which is a, a proposition that would allow, uh, would require ballot measures to stick to a single subject. Now, a lot of states have these single subject rules anyway. Arizona voters approved uh, their proposition to to enact a single subject rule. Um, there is another one on the ballot in Arizona that would require a 60% threshold for ballot measures to pass. That one hasn't been called yet, but it's leading at the moment uh, by about 30,000 votes. Uh, and there are, you know, there are some other states where ballot measures must reach that 60% threshold, Florida being the most prominent example. You know, there have been some, some measures in Florida that have gotten 57, 58% of the vote in recent years and have not passed because they didn't reach that 60% threshold. There was also a good portion of ballot measures that dealt with how we vote. Voter ID, even ranked choice voting made it onto some states' ballots. What voting law initiatives stood out to you? Well, there were just a, a couple that um, sort of tinker around the edges here. Uh, in Nebraska voters passed a measure that would require a photo identification to vote. Uh, in Michigan, they added several uh, elections pr- protection measures to the state constitution, so something that voting rights activists uh, are, are cheering these days. Uh, and then in, in Connecticut, uh, they passed, uh, the voters passed a measure that would allow early voting. Uh, northeastern states are typically sort of behind the curve on early voting. I think that's a, that's a legacy of sort of the first settlers who showed up and, and wrote voting rules in states like uh, Massachusetts it's in New Hampshire uh, and Connecticut. Um, And then uh, I'd point to uh, Nevada as well, which is a state that took the first step towards implementing ranked choice voting, which I think we've talked about before. Uh, Nevada would be the third state to implement ranked choice voting after Alaska and Maine. uh, But the way Nevada's rules are written, uh, this measure actually has to pass again in a couple of years uh, before uh, before it finally qualifies. If you want to learn a little bit more about ranked choice voting, how it works, you can find a conversation we did, I think it was earlier this year, at the 1A org. We'll also tweet out a link at 1A. Broadly speaking, Reed, for states that do have ballot measures, how important are they for regular citizens who who want to make a change in their state? 
You know, they ha- ballot measures have a long and complicated history, and, and most states, especially Western states, adopted the ballot measure in the progressive era about a little more than a century ago, uh, and they used those ballot measures to combat uh, the control over the state legislature that timber barons and railroad barons had, uh, you know, th- those sort of the, the biggest of big donors, if you will, um, who really controlled state legislatures, and the citizens used those ballot measures to claw power back, to uh, oust the uh, those, those powerful interest groups uh, from control. In more recent years, though, it's interesting that these ballot measures have been seen as a way for special interest groups and even corporations uh, to rewrite state law that favors them. I'd point to a California proposition this year that uh, ostensibly would have been really good for the, electronic, uh, the electric vehicle industry, uh, but Governor Gavin Newsom opposed the measure because he saw it as a, just a massive corporate giveaway uh, to the rideshare company Lyft. Well, we're glad you're sticking with us, Reed, to help dig into all of this. And we want to bring a new voice into the conversation. Bo Kilmer is the co-director of the Rand Drug Policy Research Center. Bo, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Jen. Recreational marijuana legalization was on the ballot in five states, North Dakota, South Dakota, Arkansas, Maryland, and Missouri. I want to get to each state, but first we got this tweet from Bob who says, any sense why South Dakota's recreational marijuana initiative failed? Bo, what can you tell us? That's a really good question, and I haven't seen any hard answers about that. Uh, some have hypothesized that uh, you know it had passed in 2020 because it was a presidential election, and you just had a different mix of voters uh, voting uh, last week. Um, it's not entirely clear why it didn't pass, but I sense that the discussions are going to continue in South Dakota as well as in some of the other places where it didn't pass. And how close was that race? In South Dakota, I'm not entirely sure about the the, the difference there, um, but uh, but you know, as you mentioned, it was on the ballot in five different states, and it, it ended up passing in Maryland and Missouri. Mm-hmm. So you know, some people may look at that and say, look, two out of five states, uh, cannabis didn't have a good night at the polls. But here's another way to think about it: for those five states, they have about 17 million residents. And Maryland and Missouri account for more than 70% of that total population. So some people may look at that and say, hey, it was a win. Reed, what are your thoughts when you look at that, that result that only two of the five states with marijuana legalization on the ballot actually approved the measure? Well, so in South Dakota, the measure passed or failed by a 53 to 47% margin. And when it passed a couple of years ago, the margin was pretty close, too. It was 51 or 52% voting in favor. Um, that measure actually got booted. It, it was ruled unconstitutional after a challenge from Governor Kristi Noem, uh, who is a staunch opponent of legal marijuana. But when we take a look at the, the races that happened this year, um, most of them were pretty close. Maryland was not close. We knew that voters were going to approve legal marijuana by a wide margin there. But Maryland is the only blue state on that list. The other four, Missouri, South Dakota, Arkansas, and North Dakota, uh, are all very conservative states. The interesting thing for marijuana legalization advocates here is that now that they've reached, I think it's 21 states in the District of Columbia that have legalized marijuana for recreational purposes, they don't have a lot of other places they can go to run these ballot measures. Most other states don't allow citizen-initiated ballot measures. uh, And as a matter of fact, Maryland doesn't either. The legislature there put the measure on the ballot. Um, but legalization advocates, they, they sort of they now have to turn their attention to state legislatures uh, who have been 
more reticent, but not entirely reluctant uh, to pass legalization bills. There have been some states like Vermont and New Jersey uh, where it's been the legislature that has approved uh, marijuana rather than the voters. We got this email from Jay in Oklahoma who says, years ago when Oklahoma voted to allow recreational marijuana and expanding Medicaid, our mostly Republican leaders started passing laws directly contradicting our choices. How are Republicans planning to curb the rights the voters have passed and what can they do? Read what are the options here, if those state legislatures don't like the measure that's passed, what options do they have? You know, in a a number of states where voters have approved legal marijuana over the objections of office holders, uh, those state legislatures have allowed local governments to effectively ban pot sales in their area. Um, So they have have allowed, you know, cities to hold referenda, (coughs) excuse me, to... um, to block uh, legal pot sales or or dispensaries from opening, and that's probably the path that we would see uh, in states where there where there is legislative opposition. Now, Maryland and Missouri voters, as we said, did approve the legalization of recreational marijuana. But what happens next in those states? Well, in Maryland, you know, starting at July first, two thousand twenty-three. The personal possession of up to 1.5 ounces of cannabis uh, will be legal for those who are 21 and older. And just to help you put that in perspective, that's the equivalent of about 40 to 120 joints, you know, depending on how you roll them. And, uh, and also beginning July 1st in the state, the initiative will allow adults to grow up to two cannabis plants in their home as long as it's out of public view. Now, in terms of what's going to happen with respect to retail sales in Maryland, um, it looks like that's going to be addressed by the General Assembly in next year's session. So we don't know what the uh, retail market is going to look like. Now, in Colorado, voters approved the decriminalization of psilocybin, or magic mushrooms as they're more commonly known. What were the details of that measure, Bo? Yeah, well, first of all, I think it's important to step back and make this distinction between decriminalization and legalization. You know, those terms sometimes get used interchangeably, and it ends up creating a lot of confusion. So when we talk about decriminalization, we're typically talking about reducing the penalties related to just possession. You know, whereas in some places where it may have been a criminal offense, it's now you know, perhaps a civil offense and you pay a fine. It's still illegal, but it's not a criminal offense. Now, when we typically talk about legalization, that not only legalizes the possession, you know, typically for those who are 21 and older, but it also allows for some aspect of supply. Uh, So decriminalization doesn't usually um, affect the supply. Decriminalization is usually about the possession laws. Mm -hmm. Now, what happened in Colorado were two different things. First of all, this was Measure 122. It creates a state-regulated kind of system with a number of what are going to be called healing centers, where anyone 21 and older can use psilocybin, uh, you know, the active ingredient in magic mushrooms, under supervision. And it looks like those uh, centers will open up probably sometime in 2024. But what didn't get it as much much attention is that the measure also legalized the possession, use, cultivation, and sharing of psilocybin and some other plant-based psychedelics for those who are 21 and older. Um, There aren't going to be retail sales but people can grow these plants and can give away the product. And so that's very different uh, from the uh, psychedelics initiative that passed in Oregon in 2020. Reed, we've been following the legalization of marijuana, the decriminalization of marijuana um, state to state for some time now, but 
Where are you seeing the decriminalization or legalization of psychedelics? Where is that trend heading? Yeah, I, I think we're probably going to see it in some of the more liberal blue states. As as Bo said, it started in Oregon. Now it's gone to Colorado. Um, important to remember that Colorado and Washington State were the first two uh, that legalized uh, marijuana for recreational purposes, gosh, a decade ago. I can't believe it was that long ago. Um, there was a, a, a psilocybin initiative on the ballot here in Washington, D.C., uh, what, two years ago, I think? Um, and I, can, I, I would be willing to bet you that it will show up on ballots in Washington State uh, and, and California in the coming years. But this side of the debate doesn't quite have the momentum yet that legal marijuana did. Um, there's no sort of big national push uh, to, to legalize these these magic mushrooms, um, at least that I've seen uh, so far. But who, who are the major drivers of this push to legalize psychedelics? Um, there are a number of funders, uh, Dr. Bronner's, you know, famous for the soap and other products. Uh, uh, the owners there have put a fair amount of money behind these initiatives. And, uh, and one thing I did want to uh, follow up on is in terms of Oregon, you know, uh, as we mentioned, uh, legalization of uh, psilocybin, uh, you know, being under uh, supervision, you know, was passed in 2020. But it was also on the ballot in a number of places uh, last week. Um, you know, when the measure passed in 2020, you know, it allowed local jurisdictions to ban these centers or implement a two-year moratorium. But, this, th- but that decision was, had to be put to a vote in last week's election. And across the state, you know, most counties voted against uh, allowing these centers to open up, you know, similar to what they did in 2020. But that said, the places in Oregon where the majority of the population lives, you know, in the, for example, in the Portland metro area, you know, they're going to allow these centers. And this is a bit different from what, ha- or from what was passed in Colorado, and that Colorado doesn't allow for this local opt-out. Um, so, yeah, so even though, um, you know, Colorado and kind of what was happening with cannabis in five states was getting a lot of attention, there was also a lot of action at the local level. So not only in Oregon with respect to the uh, psilocybin centers, uh, but also, you know, Rhode Island voters in 25 cities approved local ballot uh, measures uh, to allow um, adult uh, use marijuana businesses. Uh, in Ohio, five cities passed decriminalization of cannabis. Uh, so there was a lot of action last week. Mm. You have to leave it there for now. Bo Kilmer is the co-director of the Rand Drug Policy Research Center. Bo, thanks so much for your time. Reed Wilson is sticking with us. He's with Pluribus News. And in a moment, slavery was on the ballot in five states, and one state voted not to prohibit it. We find out why after this. I'm Jen White, back with more in just a moment. Now let's get back to our conversation about the midterm results you may have missed. You're sharing what happened in your state. One of you tweets, the workers' rights amendment was just called in Illinois in its favor. Good to see it enshrined in the state constitution. We should mention that amendment guarantees workers the right to bargain collectively. Allison emails, I live in Michigan and am beyond thrilled that Prop 3 passed, which will enshrine abortion rights in our constitution. That said, my heart breaks for my daughters who were worried it wouldn't pass. Such a thing shouldn't be on their radars. Grateful to the reasonable citizens of Michigan for protecting their rights to their bodies. 
And Bob in Cincinnati emails Ohio passed issue one, which had to do with how and when judges can impose high bail amounts when they think an arrestee would be a danger to the public. It seems to be part of a larger debate about the role of bail and other ways of keeping people in jail before trials if they seem to be a risk to the public. We're here with Reed Wilson. He's the founder and editor-in-chief at Pluribus News. That's an online media outlet covering state-level public policy. And joining us now is Aaron Morrison, the national race and ethnicity writer for the Associated Press. Aaron, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So voters in four states, Alabama, Tennessee, Vermont, and Oregon, have approved ballot measures that prohibit slavery and involuntary servitude. Explain a bit more about these ballot measures. So these ballot measures essentially went after language that you know was enshrined in state constitutions that, that did what the the 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution did, which, which said we are pro- prohibiting slavery and involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime. So uh, there, these states, uh, four states, have essentially removed that exception um, and said that there is no exception uh, for slavery or involuntary uh, servitude. Um, but, you know, there, there's a fifth state, Louisiana, that uh, did not vote in favor of, of, of banning or prohibiting slavery and involuntary servitude. And that's because the language of the ballot question wasn't quite right. So they actually have to go at it uh, another time. When you say it wasn't quite right, explain more. It, you know, it, it's the language of it essentially said um, bans uh, slavery and involuntary servitude, uh, except in the lawful administration of the criminal justice system. Um, sort of paraphrasing there, but but essentially, it's the it's almost identical language to the Thirteenth Amendment. So, um, you know, there there were um, supporters, lawmakers, um, that said, even though we you know voted to put this on the ballot, put this to voters, we're now saying, do not vote in favor of this because it, it's too broad. The language is confusing, and we want a, another shot at this so that, that it's it's uh, unambiguous what we're trying to do. So, who who was pushing? for these ballot measures to pass and who was pushing back against them? So, you know, there's there are a number of, of, of advocates, uh, you know, in, in the space of, of slavery abolition, but, you know, particularly in the context of, of prison reform, uh, there is an organization called the Abolished Slavery National Network. Uh, and they've been, uh, you know, they had their hands largely in, in all of the efforts uh, across the U.S. to uh, amend state constitutions that still uh, provide some sort of exception for slavery as a punishment for crime for, for folks who are in prison. Before the midterms, 20 states had language in their constitutions allowing forced labor or slavery as punishment for some crimes. What do these ballot measures mean for the four states that passed them? So let's be really clear, because I know a lot, I've got a lot of questions about this uh, on social media and a few emails, too. It does not ban prison labor. These these uh, ballot initiatives do not say that you can you are no longer allowed to uh, require prisoners to work uh, or to offer work opportunities to um, to prisoners. What it says is that work cannot be um, part of the punishment for the crime that they've been convicted of. So um, you know, in a lot of ways, this opens up the, the you know an avenue for um, you know prisoners to challenge where they are being penalized when they aren't engaging in the, the work that uh, has been made available to them, uh, you know, in prisons. So that's that's what's going to change. It's, it's really going to cur- curtail the use of prison labor. Who, who gets to define that or oversee it? Like, where are the checks and balances to make sure that's actually happening? 
You know, that's actually a, a fantastic question because there isn't, I mean, even with uh, these ballot initiatives that are certainly, you know, going in and, 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 and curtailing uh, the use of, of prison labor, um, there isn't a whole lot of regulation in regards to how um, prisoners uh, and, and when they are required to, to perform uh, certain work. Now, you know, the uh, a lot of people will say, well, this is part of the rehabilita- rehabilitation process, that you, in providing jobs to people who are incarcerated, you're providing them with a, a sense of structure uh, to their time while they're, while, they're, while they're serving a sentence. You're also uh, providing certain skills, um, that they're building skills that can you know, uh, help them when they are um, paroled or, or released. Um, but but there are also those who say, yeah, but you know when a a prisoner does not perform uh, satisfactorily in these jobs, they can be punished by having their uh, phone privileges taken away, or visitation rights taken away, or even being put in solitary confine, uh, confinement, which is eerily similar to the punishments that um, were you know exacted on enslaved people. So um, you know there, there's there's two you know uh, schools of thought around this like like supporting rehabilitation but also at the same time making sure that that this type of of labor the prison prison labor cannot be exploited um so um easily that that it just almost resembles uh enslavement uh you know that we we abolished in with the 13th amendment what does this mean for prisons that use prison labor or even have prison work programs well, it's essentially, again, what it means is that it's going to, it's definitely going to curtail the use of prison labor, uh, especially in cases where there are prison um, prisoner rights groups that are challenging how this work is, it you know, is required, whether it's required, whether people are coerced into doing it. So that that's going to curtail it. But it's also, um, you know, it's going to essentially say, um, you know, how are how are you? Um, Using the revenues because let's keep in mind that this is a big business still um, to you know prison labor. How are we using the revenues to ultimately benefit the rehabilitation of the folks that will eventually be released? Uh, according to the American Civil Liberties Union, U.S. prison workers produce about eleven billion dollars worth of goods and services a year. So, put this within an economic context for us, if you can, Aaron. Yeah, I mean, what we're talking about is, you know, as you said, billions of dollars. Um, but the the prisoners themselves are making pennies on the dollar for their work, and in some cases, uh, it's it's work that um, would be really expensive for the uh, carceral institutions to to have done by an you know an outside vendor. So, for instance, if you're requiring prisoners to uh, do m- much of the upkeep of a prison, then you don't have to pay necessarily a group from the out- vendor from the outside to come in and do a lot of the the cleaning and uh, and, and upkeep um, that that you know, obviously could be really expensive and pricey. Um, wh- where prisons have had to really cut back on on costs. Um, they can't do so in the area of, of correctional officers or, or, or guards. Um, so they, they can save by saying, hey, why don't we require prisoners to, you know, to, to do some of the work? Um, it, 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 again, provides some structure to their, their day, to their daily lives. Uh, but it also may, uh, you know, end up 
you know, benefiting them in in other ways. But you know, there there again, there are there are two schools of thought on that, and 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 whether or not that's a you know a humane thing to do. Reed, we're talking about bright red states like Alabama and Tennessee voting for a form of criminal justice reform. How often do we see red states vote for arguably progressive leaning ballot initiatives? Oh, frequently, and I, I think this gets to a uh, the broader sort of nuance of a typical voter that you know the, the voters don't fall neatly into a into a red or blue category uh, along party lines. When a minimum wage ballot measure goes on the ballot, for example, it doesn't matter if it's in a red state or a blue state; it almost always passes. Um, when we talk about removing uh, this the, the racist and outdated language in, in state constitutions. Two of the first three states that did it back in 2020 were Nebraska and Utah, which are not exactly you know beaming bright blue icons. Um, so the, the you know this gets to the the point that there are very few voters who hew exactly to a Democratic or Republican uh, uh, line. Their voters are complicated; they have complicated feelings. Um, one thing I'll point out, by the way, in the Alabama question uh, that removed slavery from the state constitution, that was a, a total rewrite of the. Uh, of the state constitution. And uh, I mean, Alabama state constitution had something like 989 amendments to it. Uh, even even with the rewrite, it's a 747 page document. The Alabama constitution is the longest governing document in the entire world. Aaron, as we said earlier, 20 states have this law uh, on the books. They have language in their constitutions that allow forced labor or slavery as punishment for some crimes. Are you seeing a trend with other states moving in in this direction? Uh, I, I think it's too early to say we're seeing a trend, but you know, if you talk to to the the leaders of the of the um, anti slavery uh, movement, they're saying that that this last week's midterm uh, you know uh, vote on uh, slavery ballot initiatives was a historic uh, vote, uh, and what they hope is that this is going to trigger a trend, a a, a sort of snowballing uh, of of this effort in in, um, in other states. We're we're right now at about eight states that have voted or uh, either by their you know a, a passage of legislation or by ballot initiative to remove this, the slavery exception from uh, state constitutions. Um, you know, you've mentioned Nebraska and Utah. Colorado was uh, was one of the was considered one of the first to do it by ballot initiative. Um, and then, you know, the a leader that I spoke to from uh, the Abolish Slavery National Network told me that he and others uh, in his network worked with 15 states uh, this year, but only five uh, of those ballot initiatives uh, actually went to voters. Uh, you know, last week um, in 2023, they're hoping to uh, work with two dozen states. Um, and they need to do that because in order for a federal mm-hmm. um, uh, revision to the 13th Amendment to happen, um, they need about 38 states to uh, be ready to come forward and ratify that constitutional amendment. So what they're trying to do right now is basically run up the score. They're trying to get as many wins as they can uh, so that by the time um, there is enough uh, support in Congress for a, a revision of the 13th Amendment, they will also have the 38 states they need in order to to ratify that. And, and the leader I spoke to expects that they'll have 38 states um, by 2025. Reed, I want your read on that as well. How likely is it we'll see 38 states move in, in this direction to ratify the 13th Amendment? 
Oh, it's it's uh, extremely difficult to get 38 states to agree on what day of the week it is, much less <laughs> on, on changing the Constitution. I think I think what we're more likely to see is the state-by-state -state effort uh, to remove the racist and outdated language that are in their own constitutions. Uh, a lot of these constitutions are 150, 200 years old, uh, and, or, or you know, older than that even, um, and, and they contain a bunch of stuff that contradicts themselves and, uh, and stuff like that. So I, I think we're more likely to see the state-by-state -state move uh, than we are any sort of federal movement. We got this email from Aaron who says, in Baltimore, a grassroots effort to get the necessary signatures for a transit equity measure never made it on the ballot. One signature was thrown out because the signature didn't include her middle name. But Sinclair Broadcasting got their signatures together to put term limits for council members on the ballot. I wish I would have known that voting for term limits was on the ballot to protect this corporation's business interests. I'd love to hear from both of you, you know, as we are soon to head into the 2024 election cycle. Sorry to say that out loud, but it's where we are. How should voters think about being informed about the ballot measures that are that they're going to be voting on, not just the language of them, but also who's supporting them, who's promoting them, who's pushing back against them? What advice do you have, Aaron? Well, I, I certainly think, of in, you know, in the case of, of the, the um, anti-slavery ballot initiatives, it's really about, um, you know, making sure that uh, those who are putting, you know, putting the, the effort forward, who are putting the legislation forward to create the ballot initiatives, or those who are organizing, you know, on the streets, on the grassroots level, getting the signatures so that the, the uh, petition or the uh, ballot initiative can make it to, um, to, to uh, the election day. I mean, I think it's really about um, doing your homework on those groups that are behind it. I mean, you know, certainly a lot of people in Louisiana believed that the effort there was, um, you know, was, was, was a good one. Um, and, um, then they come to find, and, and it's complicated, so I'm not going to give you all the, the weeds and the details here, but, um, you know, what they were essentially saying was, hey, we supported you to, you know, when you said that you were going to put this on the ballot, and now you're coming back later and telling us that this is, this language is not right. And who was involved in the watering down of this language? Who was involved in the translating what you originally said to what actually made it on the ballot? I think that's where voters really need to pay attention to, you know, um, the interests that may come in and maybe uh, nip at the edges of, of these types of, um, you know, initiatives. Reed, I'll give you the last word here in just a sentence or two. Yeah. I, first of all, uh, ballot measures are extremely complicated, and education is is everything. Second, I tell people to go to a, a resource like Ballotpedia, Ballotpedia.org. Uh, they're they're great at tracking who's spending on these and what the ballot initiatives actually mean, because wading through legalese is not fun for anybody. That's Reed Wilson. He's the founder and editor-in-chief at Pluribus News. Also with us, Aaron Morrison, the national race and ethnicity writer for the Associated Press. Reed, Aaron, thanks for your time today. Remember, we have a text club. It's the fastest way to connect with us. Find out how to sign up under the Talk to 1A tab at the1a.org. Today's producer was Michelle Harvin. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk again tomorrow. This is 1A.